Beautiful and palatial Ultimate Sports Talk dot com radio studios. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk show. It is another Thursday night. It's another Thursday night full of NFL preseason action. Not quite as full as last Thursday night, but still a couple of games going on this evening, including the Cleveland Browns entertaining the Buffalo Bills, and that should be an entertaining contest. Tom Brady, of course, he's still in the news as far as what's going on with Deflate Gate, but there's a lot more going on. And ESPN, they actually took the time to apologize to the New England Patriots. Unfortunately, it happened when most of us were asleep. I'll get into that more coming up later on. We've got a couple of guests for you tonight in this star-studded edition of the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Mario Granada will be our first guest in the first half hour of HashtagSports.com. He's out of Buffalo, and we're going to be talking to him about the practices that have been going on this week between the Bills and the Browns, and we'll talk to him about tonight's preseason action. And a special guest here this evening, back in the 1990s, one of the best relief pitchers in Major League Baseball was Jose Mesa. Well, Jose Mesa Jr. is now pitching for the New York Yankees, and we had an opportunity earlier today to speak to Jose Mesa Jr., and I think you'll find that interview quite entertaining. That's going on all on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. But first... Well, I'm in mourning. There's no doubt about it. I'm definitely in mourning because Connor Shaw is out for the year. On Monday, it was announced that Connor Shaw, the so-called third-string quarterback of the Cleveland Browns, was suddenly put on the IR because he has a thumb injury. I thought Connor Shaw was actually the best quarterback that the Browns have, bar none. Better than Josh McCown, better than Johnny Manziel. Better than Thaddeus Lewis. I just thought that Connor Shaw was the guy. And now I'm not going to get to see Connor Shaw not only not play tonight, but I'm not going to get to see him play the rest of the year. That's got me upset. I'm I'm disillusioned as far as the quarterback situation is concerned. And I only needed to turn on ESPN just a few minutes ago to find out why I'm becoming disillusioned again because Johnny Manziel now becomes more and more of a factor as far as the quarterback competition is going on with the Browns and to me that is a problem when Johnny Manziel is sticking his nose into a quarterback competition nothing good can come of it nothing and especially tonight Johnny Manziel has really been on the back burner I've got to say this he's been on the back burner in the first three weeks of training camp. Nobody's really paid that much attention to him. And then last week in the game against Washington, he came in, ran 12 yards for a touchdown, went 7 for 11 in passing. But the longer that he stayed in the game, the more the Washington Redskins picked up on him and figured out what was going on with him. So that's what happened as far as the game was concerned last week. The Browns lost the game. Connor Shaw didn't look too bad. Josh McCown looked very, very good. He was 5 of 5 passing in one drive. Now, McCown is expected to play the entire first quarter tonight. Johnny Manziel is going to play the entire second quarter and into the third quarter. But ESPN tonight, that was their lead story. Johnny Manziel is going to play tonight. Oh boy, he's on ESPN. We've got to publicize Johnny Manziel. Yippee! Johnny Manziel's going to play this evening. And as far as I'm concerned, that's the worst news that the Browns could have. Now, another thing that has happened to the Browns this week is Justin Gilbert. Justin Gilbert is out for a while. He's got a hip flexor injury. Now, Justin Gilbert was the number one pick of the Browns two years ago, even before Johnny Manziel. And Justin Gilbert has turned out to be the bust of the 2013 draft. And he just continues and continues and continues to prove that Ray Farmer was an idiot in taking this guy. Now, there are rumors that Mike Pettin had the pick, and it was Mike Pettin's pick. But still, when it all comes down to the end, 
Ray Farmer's the guy that drafted him. Just the same as there are rumors out there that say Jimmy Haslam decided that the Browns should take Johnny Manziel with the second overall number one pick. Ray Farmer, that's his pick too. That's on him. So in preseason football tonight, you've got the Browns and the Buffalo Bills at First Energy Field at 8 o'clock. And they practiced all week in Rochester against each other, and this will culminate those practices throughout the week. And our initial guest tonight from HashtagSports.com is Mario Granada. And Mario talked to us earlier this week uh, just about the practices that were going on with the Browns and the Bills and what to expect out of Buffalo this season. The Cleveland Browns and the Buffalo Bills have been practicing out in Rochester now for the past couple of days, and they're going to kick off at First Energy Field in Cleveland here coming up in about a half an hour from now. And joining us from HashtagSports.net, He's the co-host of Hashtag Sports, Mario Granada. Mario, thanks for joining us tonight. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining us here tonight. The, as I said at the top, the Browns and the Bills have been practicing over the past few days in Rochester. Now, what we're hearing here in Cleveland, Mario, is that the Browns have been getting beat up by the Bills. Is that something that you've heard, and how have you understood the practices have been going between the two clubs. Well, you know, there, there's, there's you know, there's a lot of similarities when you start to talk about the Browns and the Bills as far as the history, uh, the recent history of the Bills and, and the Browns in the past 20 years. It's it's really tough because uh, it seems like we're always, you know, the, the joke uh, of the league or always the doormat of the league and a lot of things are going on. So, you know, Rex Ryan brings this new philosophy to Buffalo. He's actually the first coach that came into Buffalo with an actual personality. So he said he's going to build a bully. And, the, and, you know, some of the moves that has have come after that, the Richie Incognito, I.K. and Impali, and all those guys, but Percy Harvin and whatnot, these guys that have had checkered backgrounds are starting to bring guys in um, with a little bit more of an edge and a little bit more of an attitude. Uh, the news around camp is um, before camp, the Bills were, if we could stay healthy, we're going, to do, we're going to make some noise this year. And what's going on, what I'm hearing more is the injuries that are befalling all of the, the offensive players on the Buffalo Bills and a couple of defensive players. Um, but as far as the uh, the Rex Ryan building the bully and then taking the bully out on his uh, his disciple, Mike Pettin's um, <laughs> Cleveland Browns, I haven't heard too much about that going on. Just as, just as much the big talk around here in Buffalo is the rash of injuries that we've had. Do you see a lot of similarities between these two teams because of Pettin and Ryan? Oh, no doubt, no doubt. I mean, going back to the draft, um, Trading up and picking Justin Gilbert, and which we'll get into in a little bit, you know that was a Mike Pettin pick. He already had Joe Hayden in tow. He wanted to pick another lockdown corner and play nine-on-nine football. That's Rex Ryan's philosophy. He goes out, he gets Kruger, he gets Dansby, he gets all these guys that try to model the you know the success that he had both in New York and Baltimore with Ryan. So in doing that, um, you know, the teacher usually says, listen, I, ta- I taught you everything you know. I didn't teach you everything I know. So there's still a couple tricks up a Rex Ryan's sleeve that he probably didn't teach Patton in his, in his system. But we here in Buffalo have some very, you know, have some experience with Patton. He comes in, first year as defensive coordinator, the Bills break the franchise sack record. So it's, you know, I, I was really high on Mike Patton when he signed, when he signed in, uh, to be the head coach of Cleveland. I was actually happy for Cleveland. I'm a fan of Cleveland as well. I think he's a great coach. I think he's going to do some great things for the Cleveland Browns in the years to come if he's given time to. Um, but as far as the similarities go, they are very similar in their philosophy. Listen, we're going to make your offense make mistakes. We're not going to wait for you to make mistakes. Mario, that's the big question. A lot of people around here feel like if the Browns win two, three, maybe even four games, even though Jimmy Haslam says he's safe, they think Jimmy Haslam will pull the trigger and, and Mike Pettin is gone. And I agree with you. I think Pettin was a good choice. I mean, is that the word around the league? Is that if Pettin doesn't win seven, eight, nine games, he's probably out as Browns coach? Well, I understand that it's a win now league, and that's the philosophy that's going on. But when Mike Pettin took over the Cleveland Browns, he didn't have all of his guys there. You got to give the coach time to get his guys that he wants, his system, his philosophy. These guys got to buy into the program, and he's got, he needs his players to buy into that program. So some of the things that he's done in such a short period of time. I'm sure he's, you know, when he came here, the philosophy and the the dynamic of the Buffalo Bills as far as, it's, you know, as a team, 
since we haven't made the playoffs, but we were just – no one wanted to play the Bills because of the defense and the pressure that they put on the opposing team. I'm sure that that sentiment um, coming from a Bills fan looking at Cleveland from the outside, I don't like playing the Cleveland – I wouldn't want to play the Cleveland Browns because I know Petten's going to come after you. If you're in third and seven and longer, he's pinning his ears back and he's coming after your quarterback. There's no question in my mind. But he he definitely needs time. If, if he goes through like a four or five win season, it's not going to be because his defense wasn't good enough. And it's not going to be because of philosophy. He needs to get some more horses on that offensive side of the ball. You picked up Dwayne Bowe. You got Hartline. Um, you know, you got to do something with that quarterback position, which the Bills are very familiar with. We're still, we're still trying to figure that out here. So it, he needs some time to try to get some horses in there. And, and maybe, you know, year three, year four, he's able to do that and make some noise in, uh, in the AFC North. Mary Granada is our guest here tonight from Hashtag Sports talking about the Buffalo Bills who the Browns are playing tonight. Mario, other than the obvious, very obvious things about Rex Ryan, what has been the difference in this camp between Rex Ryan and the former Bills coach, Doug Marone? Well, you know, it's, it's, with, with Marone, you know, you can just look at the guy and you can see that he's got that sad face on him. Uh, you know, we've had guys like Mike Malarkey here. We've had Dick Duran. We, you know, we've had um, Greg Williams, and now we've got Rex Ryan. We've got a guy coming in with a lot of personality. Rex Ryan's coming in from arguably the biggest media market in the world in New York City. He's coming into Buffalo. He's going to bring that swagger. He's going to bring that attitude. Along with that, he brought a lot of new toys. I mean, Doug Whaley, the general manager for the Bills, was able to bring in a lot of new toys, brought in LaShawn McCoy, brought in Percy Harvin. Uh, he brought in... Uh, Tyrod Taylor, who in the first preseason game for Buffalo, and Tyrod Taylor is all the rage now in the 716 area code for the Buffalo Bills. So he brought a lot of these guys in. He wants to change the culture and change the atmosphere. And what he did was, by doing that, he wanted to bring in players that would change it for him. You know, you bring in a, a Richie Incognito. Okay. All right, let's see what happens. You bring in, a, you know, Ikean and Polly. You bring in all these other guys. You draft a, a Ronald Darby. You, you draft a, a John Miller. Um, you draft all these guys that you want to shape the team in your image. Now, the Bills already had a pretty good defense and that I think Rex Ryan was drooling over having having had to play them twice a year. So what he wanted to do was he just wanted to bring a different kind of attitude into Western New York. And, you know, if you don't make the playoffs for 15 years, you're kind of hoping for that as a fan as well. So that's the kind of dynamic he's brought in. He's brought in a little bit of attitude to the Buffalo Bills that wasn't there for the past 15 years because for the past 15 years, we've always had really good guys, great in the community. Uh, not saying that the guys you brought in are going to be bad in the community, but he got guys that are really good people, just not really the superstars you need to make it to the next level and make it to the playoffs. Mario, when you look at the Buffalo offense, it's confusing because they seem to be conflicting in the way that they look to be set up because you've got Rex Ryan who loves to run the ball, which would seem to fit the talents of Matt Castle, at quarterback. But then you've got Greg Roman, who over the years has done a good job in working with quarterbacks on a running game. But here over the last couple of years with Kaepernick out in San Francisco, he's been more of a passing offensive coordinator and a running quarterback type, which would seem to fit the Tyrod Taylors that you're talking about. So which direction is the offense going to go for Buffalo? I think it'll have to emanate from the head man down. It'll have to emanate from Rex. I think what Rex saw from Greg Roman is that a guy who, you know, has been the top five in rushing every year as far as attempts. He's a guy who likes to control the clock. Um, as, as we saw from Matt Castle in the first preseason game, Matt Castle uh, controlled the clock on his effort. Now, that Rex Ryan loved that. Now, as far as the dynamic goes, um, for Greg Roman, Greg Roman had Al Smith, who could you could you could somewhat compare to a Matt Castle type straight drop back guy. He's not going to take a lot of chances. He's going to make the high percentage throws. And in 2011, he went. Uh, uh, Greg Roman, uh, as offensive coordinator for the 49ers, he went two and three. Two years later, he has Kaepernick at the helm, and they go 12 and four. So what Roman is going to do, he's going to tailor the offense to the guys that he has on the field. If it's a Tyrod Taylor, you're going to see a lot of naked bootlegs. You're going to see some, you know, read options here and there. He's going to tailor it to him. You have a lot of half-field reads for Taylor like he does with Kaepernick. If you have Castle on the field, maybe you do a little bit of sleight of hand play action in the backfield. Maybe you go four wide and you have Castle read it, and then maybe if it's not there, he dumps it over to McCoy or Freddie Jackson out of the backfield. 
it just seems like he's going to adjust to whoever's in there. And that's something that we haven't had too much of um, recently in Buffalo with the offensive coordinators and the head coaches that we've had. But if I had to make a guess, if I had to hazard a guess, Rex is going to want to control the clock and let his defense hunt and make the other team one-dimensional. And either you're going to pick you're going to pick Matt Castle, who's going to have a nine-minute drive and end with a field goal, or you're going to have Tyrod Taylor with a three-and-a-half-minute drive and end maybe in a touchdown of him diving in the corner. So it just depends on which, what he likes. But, I mean, there's a reason that Tyrod Taylor was brought into Buffalo. Rex Ryan loves this guy, and he's going to give him all the chances in the world, starting with Cleveland uh, a little bit later tonight. Yeah, should you read anything into that that he's starting tonight? I, I, sh- I mean, I think it's a, you know, the deck is definitely stacked for uh, Tyrod to be successful. As I mentioned before, he's playing against Mike Pett. So it's it's going to be no different than what Tyrod has seen in practice in all of Bill's camp. It's a 3-4 look. It's an attacking defense. They're going to come at you with numbers off the corner that you can't protect. And he's, going to be, he's certainly going to be tested. What I look for in this game, um, especially uh, from the quarterback position for Taylor, is um, nobody really plans for an option quarter, or a running quarterback in the preseason. You basically just play your base and then see what happens. I don't think Patton's going to do that. I don't, I don't think he's going to initially or intentionally come after Taylor, but that's what, he's going to see if he can move the ball on a very pressure defense and make some very tough throws when he has to. He, he missed a couple throws in his first game downfield, um, which will happen because the guy has had, he's only had about 30 attempts in his, in his four-year career. So, you know, from that standpoint, that's what he's going to do. The X factor in this game is probably going to be E.J. Manuel. And, and how many chances he's going to get? Because we saw what Castle can do. Went seven of eight, completed to five different five different receivers. He already knows that's his insur- that's his safety net. That's his insurance plan. He wants to see if things can work with Taylor on, more, on a more consistent basis, and then move forward from there. Mario Granada is our guest tonight on UltimateSportsTalk.com from #Sports.net. Mario, Buffalo and Cleveland both have their redheaded stepsisters. Johnny Manziel and E.J. Manuel. I, I know what the Browns saw in Manziel, but what did Buffalo see in E.J. Manuel? Uh, I put an article up on hashtag sports.net about this a long time ago. When Doug Whaley was anointed to GM after Buddy Nix had left, I really thought that he saw some qualities in E.J. Manuel that likened him to Big Ben Roethlisberger. Now, I know it sounds insane for that to happen. However, I think that's what he saw. He saw a guy who wasn't a very heralded quarterback coming out of college, a guy that was a big, strong kid. Uh, if you look at their combine numbers, they're nearly identical. So maybe that was something that Doug Whaley saw in that. In that. Um, but initially, E.J. Uh, Manuel wasn't supposed to start his rookie year. They brought a veteran in. They brought in Kevin Cobb, who ended up having to retire due to concussion symptoms. And, you know, E.J. Manuel was just thrust into the starting job, and then injury derailed his career. Um, his first season, uh, you know, more notice, ironically, it was against the Browns. So when that first season, he only had about 10 starts. He wasn't, they weren't, they weren't 10 starts consecutively, which kind of hurt him. And they shut him down at the end of the year. In the following season, Doug Marone decided to, after four games and a very ugly pick six to JJ Watt, he decided to shut Manuel down for the year and not let the kid learn on the go. There's only so much you can learn standing on the sidelines, holding the clipboard, and watching film. He has to be on the field. As far as Manziel goes, he, he's probably in the same boat of just a very exciting player that had so much stuff thrown at him so fast that he wasn't he didn't have time to develop yet. So it's it's a very unique dichotomy between the two players, and it's just it's just one of those things that we have to deal with both as Browns and Bills fans is the quarterback situation. I mean, we it just seems we always got to shake our head every year. Who's going to be the guy to lead us over the hump? You know, when I compare Manuel, though, to Manziel, I've got to say, Manuel's got better feet. He's got better strength. He's got better arm strength. Manziel just – and he's got better height. Manziel doesn't have anything that projects into being a consistent, winning, starting NFL quarterback. Yeah, he's, he's, he's very young, though. I mean, he's very young. There's a lot of quarterbacks who didn't have that height, that had the feet. I think what Manziel needs to do is is something that I think he's trying to do this year, and it started with him going to rehab. He's trying to clean up his act. I think he wants to just be a football player. He doesn't want to have to deal with all the glitz and glamour of all this stuff that's going on. 
you know, on Twitter or whatever the hell, whatever the heck, Instagram, all that other stuff. I think he just wants to concentrate on being a quarterback. And if he can do that, if he can tailor the offense to his strengths, then he could be a successful quarterback in the NFL. I know it sounds crazy right now, and a lot of Cleveland fans are probably shaking their head at me, but this kid has to just focus on football for right now and let let everything else just kind of, you know, go by the wayside. But, I mean, as far as that goes, I mean, Manuel – a lot of people don't know when he was at Florida State. His, you know, his, you know, his year of, uh, his last year, his senior year playing for uh, for Florida State, he was actually taking he's taking master's courses. So he's very, like you said, he's very tall, strong kid, can make every throw, uh, very bright individual, who who's gotten kind of like a, a you know short end of the stick as far as a fair shake in Buffalo, and and you got to know when new regimes come in, you know, if you were the first round pick of an old regime. It's not always the case when a new regime comes in. So we might be seeing one of the last few games of E.J. Emanuel in his career, as far as Buffalo goes. Mario, two years ago in the draft, the Browns had the number four pick, and I was all poised for them to take the wide receiver that they needed in Sammy Watkins. And they trade the pick to Buffalo for the number eight pick, which turns out to be they eventually traded it back to number nine with Minnesota. Turned out to be Justin Gilbert and a number one pick this past year, which turned out to be Cam Irving. So I've got to ask you, would Buffalo make the trade right now, Sammy Watkins for Cam Irving and Justin Gilbert? Sammy Watkins for a left tackle and a corner. I, I would have to say at this moment they would not make the trade because currently the Buffalo Bills have – what they stole in the second round in, in Cordy Glenn at left tackle, who has been a very solidifying force on that offense on, on, on a very poor line. Also, um, they, they, they drafted Ronald Darby this year um, to play cornerback. So they, you know, Rex Ryan um, can can do things with certain players that other coaches can't do as far as defensively. So and more help is needed as far as Buffalo is concerned on the offensive side of the ball. So I don't think right now, they would make that trade. But at the time, um, I think Cleveland made out – I think you guys made out pretty well uh, initially because, you know, initially a lot of upside with Justin Gilbert. You know, he was supposed to be that second shutdown corner opposite Hayden, as I mentioned before, and Patton wanted to play 9-on-9 football. Um, obviously, the, you know, there was a different story told in 2014. Gilbert didn't, really didn't blossom as, as the corner that, uh, that he was drafted to be. Um, I guess I should pose that question to you. Uh, would you would you make that trade right now? Would you would you would you take uh, would you would you ship off Irvin and Gilbert uh, for Watkins every day and twice on Sunday? <laughs> <laughs> I I love Sammy Watkins uh, coming out of Clemson. I wanted him badly. The Browns needed a wide receiver at the time. They still need a wide receiver right now. But but Ray Farmer seems to have this affinity towards running backs and just a hatred toward wide receivers. He just thinks that they are the bane of, of an existence on a football team, and he just will not take a wide receiver. Back back to Buffalo, Mario. Do you look at, am, I, am I right in looking at this team as being maybe the second best team in that division behind New England, and are they a playoff team? I think if you ask um... – I think you asked a lot of the experts they, they, with, the, with, the, with the insertion of Rex Ryan, with his defense, with the talent that's on this defensive front seven, and especially the front four, uh, they, they're going to be in every game. Now, if their offense can minimize mistakes, sounds simple on paper, but if they can minimize mistakes, they're going to be a team that will challenge New England for the throne, if possible. But then you got to realize the Jets, although they do have some offensive problems, they have. They now have Brandon Marshall. They have Eric Decker opposite him. Gino's going to be out for a little while, but you've got Chan Gailey there, who's reunited with Ryan Fitzpatrick. So they're going to do some exciting things. You got Steven Ridley in the backfield there. It just seems like all these guys in the AFC East like to trade players to each other. It's just really funny to me. Plus, you got um, the new ninety million dollar man down in Miami with Ryan Tannehill, who to me is more of an you know an Andy Dalton type of player. You got a lot of new toys there. Greg Jennings. Is there Jarvis Landry and you know uh, Jordan Cameron, which you know uh, quite a bit about. 
So, and they just picked up Indominus, who obviously the biggest name of the offseason. So the AFC East is going to be a real tough division. And there's for New England, there's not any more circled wins within the division. I don't think anywhere anymore this year. Let me ask you about a couple. Let me ask you about a couple things that are going on around the NFL here, Mario. And the first one is you guys talked about it on your show last night. The signing of Chris Johnson to Arizona over Ray Rice, and I'd like to get your opinion on that. My, I've been saying for the last couple of weeks on the show, I think there's a conspiracy in the NFL led by Roger Goodell that nobody is going to sign Ray Rice no matter what, because there is no way. I guess I'm going to pose this question to you. Would you agree with me that there is no way that you can say that Chris Johnson is a better running back than Ray Rice? Well, at one point in time, I mean, those were the top two names that were taken off fantasy boards, you know, for a lot of a lot of people. I mean, they but they both possess possess a great a great dynamic, you know, um, of two guys that can catch the ball in the backfield. I mean, Chris Johnson. They're two different types of players, though. I mean, you talk about Chris Johnson. You talk about the skill set of him in his prime. He's more of a Jamal Charles type of back. So a guy that can he, he can run between the tackles and he's very dangerous in space. He's probably he was probably one of the fastest running backs in football. You talk about Ray Rice. He's the kind of guy that's you know he's 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 just like five foot eight of muscle. Um, so it, it, right now, uh, after not seeing Rice play for an entire year and Chris Johnson not being very effective uh, in signing the uh, the veteran. Uh, minimum wage, um, who, who eventually just set the market. I don't know. I think Arizona just, you know, they just need some help. They need some help. They need some speed back there. They need a threat coming out of the backfield for Palmer. So that's the big thing with them. As far as the conspiracy that's going on against Ray Rice, um, Goodell's always preaching he wants to protect the shield. He wants the shield to be, you know, formidable, and he doesn't want anything to crack it, and he doesn't want any negative publicity brought to uh to the NFL, but here's a guy who, who, you know, just a short while ago let Michael Vick back in the league, and there was a lot of talk about that. So I don't think he just wants to deal with any negative publicity, especially with the whole Tom Brady fiasco that's going on in New England and in New York City with the court case and everything. I just think he doesn't want any more on his plate. After the whole failed uh, uh, bounty gates going down in New Orleans, he just wants to get everything off of his plate right now and not have to deal with another thing. Uh, he just got Adrian Peterson. Adrian Peterson's just back now after his his debacle last year. So uh, there's a lot on on Goodell's plate as far as the conspiracy goes. It might be true, but uh, you know I just don't think he wants to deal with any more of a headache as far as negative publicity coming on in the NFL right now. You know, with him trying to eliminate negative publicity, he perpetuates it. Absolutely. It's amazing that he still has a job. It really is amazing he still has a job in the NFL. I agree. What, what's your opinion of the Tom Brady Goodell court case going on? I think that you know it's just it's just a, it's just a fiasco. I mean, if he was if, if Tom Brady's guilty of, of the charges that are that are befalling him, I mean that's fine. I think Goodell is at, at a conflict of interest here because I mean, he had dinner at Kraft's house the day before the AFC Championship game. Now that's not a conflict of interest to you. He wasn't, you know, calling Jim Irsay in rehab and seeing how he was doing. He wasn't doing any of that chaos. So I, it's just a little conflict of interest. I think uh, the Patriots probably thought that he was just going to sweep this under the rug because they have that relationship. And when he didn't, it all manifest, it all spun out of control. And it's just a big, like I said, I said it like three times right now. It's a fiasco. It's ridiculous. So um, he needs to separate himself from from that. He can't be going to have dinner at owners' houses the night before, you know, important games like that. So, I mean, like I said, if if, if Brady is found guilty of the charges uh, that, are, that have befallen him, then Goodell is going to be fine. If he's not, then, you know, everything's going to spin out of control. There might be some owners that ask him to resign. But, you know, a, a lot of the things that have been changed in the NFL, you know, for the owner's sake as far as collective bargaining goes, you know, Goodell has, you know, complete autonomy over a lot of those things. So he, he, you know, if the owners think they have him in his pocket, in, in their pocket, he's, he's going to stay in power. That's him. You know, I don't understand this whole thing anyway. There's a couple of reasons I don't understand this deflate gate. And nobody's really said this, but the, the way they could eliminate this entire problem is 
supposedly both teams are supposed to bring in 12 balls that they've practiced with throughout the week. They're supposed to be the same PSI. They're supposed to be the same kind of ball. Why don't they just throw all 24 balls in a bag and whatever one comes out is the one that they use? And secondly, if the PSI being one or two PSIs below, the, the advantage to Tom Brady was supposed to be the grip of the football. Well, if that's the case, then why do they let quarterbacks wear the gloves with stick them on their hand, on the glove? That's a Those very interesting two, question. I, I just don't get that. Well, I, you know, being a former quarterback, I can I can definitely tell you that I played in a lot of cold weather games up here in, in, in Western New York, and I, I can tell you right now, if I had the opportunity to, to deflate a ball without getting caught, I would have did it. Another thing too is, if you have a deflated ball, it's not going to travel as far. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't seen Tom Brady throw a pass over ten yards in maybe like six years. You're but right. That could be one of the issues too, as far as PSI goes. The reason why they don't do that with the footballs is because certain footballs are designated for certain players, offense. Um, you know, the offense has a certain number of balls, and the kicker, the kicking team has a certain number of balls. The kicking team and, and the balls for the kickers are probably inflated even more than the PSI, just so they can travel the distance that they need to. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's probably why they don't throw all those in the mix. What you do is when you have a we have a set of footballs, and you work with them through the week. Uh, the quarterback picks a few that they want to specifically use in the game that they get the best grip on. You know, they're throwing it against the ground multiple times. <laughs> You know, they're scared of scratching it up. And some of them, some of them get their nails. They pull the laces out a little bit. But, you know, coming from a quarterback's perspective, in a cold-weather game, if you have that ball deflated just a little bit more than you need to, you get a better grip on it. Plus, it helps the receivers as well. So if you're not throwing passes that are, you know, way downfield and you have a strong-arm quarterback, then those passes don't fly off the wide receiver's hands as much. Mario Granada has been our guest here this evening. Mario, one final thing. I've got to bring this up. Last night on your show, you were talking about what what's wrong with Cleveland. Of course, they're still an expansion franchise. Like you said, you know, hey, they drafted Tim Couch. Well, you know, let me say, just because the Browns owner is under investigation by the FBI, just because their GM is suspended for the first four games because he texted the coaches. And just because our coaches from Buffalo doesn't mean that the Browns are that bad. <laughs> I'm not, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't think the Browns are bad. Like I said, I'm a fan of the Browns. I'm a fan of what they're doing. They're what, you, know, you know, when they picked up Ben Tate last year, I thought that was a great move to, you know, to, to you know, have a good you know, running back right there. But then all of a sudden Terrence West and Isaiah Crowell end up breaking on the scene. I think they have a lot of good pieces in place. Um, they're, they're, like you said, they got some things that are going on off the field that will definitely be a distraction. Uh, you just got to ask any team that's ever played from the Ra- you know, for the Raiders from 1970 to 1988 of uh, off-field chaos, and they'll be able to tell you what's going on. So um, as far as that goes, uh, you know, Buffalo's not shy to making bad draft picks either. I mean, um, J.P. Lawson comes to mind. You know, that's that's just the nature of the beast sometimes. But, you know, Cleveland has a lot of good pieces in place, and you got a great coach there who is a, you know, he's a player's coach. I don't know if you've had one of those there in a, in a little while. Not lately. But, um, but uh, you know, to, to backtrack to one of your points you said before, one of the reasons why in that draft, it, and I think I'm pretty sure it was released on day two, the chaos that happened with Josh Gordon being suspended for the entire year. I believe that yes. was released day two. If that it comes did. out on day, if that comes out on day one, uh, Sammy Watkins is wearing a Cleveland Browns jersey. There's no question in my mind. If that comes out on day one and, and they lost Gordon for the year, Sammy Watkins is going to be on the field. And Sammy Watkins opposite Josh Gordon is terrifying for anybody. I just cannot believe that Ray Farmer didn't know that that was coming down. It was 24 hours later. I just cannot believe that the league did not inform. Ray Farmer before that. Yeah, it could be one of those situations where it was still pending and nothing was released yet. I mean, we we, we know these things. I mean, the deflate gate didn't get released until after the draft this year. I mean, they, they didn't know that. The sanctions and everything, they didn't know that then. Because if it was released beforehand, you could have taken some draft picks away from, you know, you could have taken some draft picks away from, the, uh, the New England Patriots, right. which Belichick doesn't care. Belichick, for the rest of his life, doesn't care if he has a first or second round pick. He'll take three, three third round picks over a first and a second 
just so we can get numbers in camp and guys that don't have inflated egos that can fit into a system. You know, any guy that try to ask for more than a dime, more than what Belichick and Kraft think they're worth, they get shipped off somewhere else. You know, Richard Seymour started all that when he went. To, he wanted more money. He went to Oakland, like the graveyard of, of of souls. I mean, we want to talk about Cleveland and Buffalo. Oakland's a graveyard of souls as far as <laughs> NFL's. So, yeah, I mean, all that all that intertwined. I mean, I, I really like what Cleveland's doing. It's really easy for me to talk about the Cleveland Browns because. The Browns and the Bills have a lot of similar problems, but they both have at the helm a very, um, very defensive-minded coach who wants to attack. Who can get his, if he gets his players, he's going to be good, and has changed has changed the culture of the team in the city that they're in. Well, I certainly hope that that happens. Now, I will say this about Bill Belichick: people in Cleveland still blame him for the Browns moving. That's the first thing. And secondly, if it wasn't for the fans of Buffalo, and I hate saying this, the fans of Pittsburgh, the Browns probably wouldn't be in existence today. So we've got to thank those two fans for at least getting us the franchise back. Mario, thanks for joining us tonight. I really appreciate it. Great stuff. Hey, Dave, thanks a lot. Anytime, and uh, good luck. Take it easy, guys. Mario Granada, our guest here this evening on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Great stuff from him tonight on the Buffalo Bills and what has been going on with them in the years past and even this training camp. But if you want to get an interesting program, other than mine, of course, but uh, if you want to hear an interesting program, listen to Hashtag Sports here on Ultimate Sports Talk, and you are going to hear some interesting debate going on on Mario Granada's show. So glad to have him along here this evening on the Ultimate Sports Talk show. But one of the things that we brought up here tonight had to do with the fact that Tom Brady and the court case. And is this thing ever going to end? Like I said last week, this is the longest-running soap opera in the history of the NFL. This thing is almost longer than General Hospital in their 53 years. But what's going on now is the judge, I don't know if he could be any more clear with these guys. He's basically telling the NFL, hey, settle this thing because you're probably not going to like how I rule. Yesterday... He came up with a statement that said, I don't see how this equates to a four-game suspension. And then Adam Schefter of ESPN reported that Tom Brady was ready to accept a lesser suspension in exchange for the fact that he did not have to agree that he did something wrong. Well, Tom Brady came out later along with his agent and said, no, that is not the case. So will it get adjudicated or will it get settled we'll find out on august 31st i guess that is the next court date and for months the new england patriot fans have been waiting for espn to apologize but it's never come but last night it did and this is what is amazing they got on the air at 12:20 in the morning it's the only time this aired 12:20 in the morning and Steve Levy, one of the big heads of ESPN, got on SportsCenter to apologize for some false reporting on the Pat scandal. Now, i got to tell you this. He was not apologizing about Deflategate. He was apologizing about Spygate seven years ago. On two occasions in recent weeks, SportsCenter incorrectly cited a 2002 report regarding the New England Patriots and Super Bowl 36. That story was found to be false and should not have been part of our reporting. We apologize to the Patriots organization. Not only is it too little too late, it's seven years too late for crying out loud. But, you know, and then they did it at 12.20 in the morning when most people are asleep. Whatever. Thank you, ESPN. And as far as other preseason games that are going on tonight, there's just two. The other preseason game in the NFL this evening is Detroit at Washington. A couple of trades in Major League Baseball this week. The San Francisco Giants today announced they've acquired veteran outfielder Marlon Byrd and cash considerations from the Cincinnati Reds in exchange for AA right-hander Steven Johnson. The addition of Byrd will provide the Giants with some desperately needed outfield depth since Nori Aoki is out and is slated to come back from concussion. But who knows how he'll be when that happens. And the Philadelphia Phillies yesterday finally traded 
Chase Utley and cash considerations to the Los Angeles Dodgers in exchange for minor leaguers Darnell Sweeney and John Ritchie. Well, you've got the Boons, the Roses, the Griffies, all are famous Major League Baseball father-son tandems that played. Now there could be another. In the 90s, one of the best relievers in baseball was Jose Mesa. Mesa accumulated over 300 saves during his 19-year career. And during that period, he raised a son, Jose Mesa Jr. Well, now Mesa Jr. is in the minors right now in Charleston, single A. That's the New York Yankees farm system. And he has quite a future in front of him. Tonight, our guest, Jose Mesa Jr. like to welcome our ultimate sports talk microphones here this evening. Jose Mesa Jr., the son of former Cleveland Indians and Philadelphia Phillies, Pittsburgh Pirates reliever Jose Mesa. Jose is in the minor leagues now in the Yankees organization. Jose, thanks for joining us here tonight. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Thanks a lot for joining us here tonight. You know, your father spent 19 years in Major League Baseball as the reliever, and and actually he started out his career, I remember, as a starter. Now you're in the Yankee organization. Tell us a little bit about what you learned from your father throughout his major league career and just what he has embedded in you as you embark on yours. Um, One of the main things that I remember from my father is always to work hard, uh, always give it 100%. And even even in baseball, that there's always going to be some hard times. And whenever hard times come, just keep grinding it out and working hard. And if you're giving your 100% and doing your job working hard, that it should always be enough and you should always get the job done. You know, he was a big guy. I remember him being 6'3", 6'4", about 200 pounds. But from what I'm seeing, you're a little bit taller than him and you're a little bit more broad in stature. Is that the case? Uh, yeah, right now it is, but if you get to see him right now, he's been hitting the weights a lot, so he looks a little bit like Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> <laughs> he's are you as strong in, right now. Are, are you so as intimidating on the mound, Jose? A little bit bigger. Okay. Are you as intimidating looking on the mound as he was? Uh, I'm hoping I am. <laughs> you know, you you said you just got promoted to Charleston. But when I was looking at your stats this morning, your last 10 games, you really pitched lights out. Are you finally seeing from your Tommy John surgery that you had a couple of years ago, are you finally seeing the strength coming back into your arm? Yeah, the strength is coming back. Everything's feeling well, thanks to God. And I'm being able to execute all my pitches, and, and I've been able to work work ahead in the count, which is one of the main things, and just also just – been able to to feel good again, and my arm feels great, thanks to God, and I just hope to keep it going. What What is the recuperation period like on that surgery, Jose? What What was it like for you, and what was the rehab like? Well, um, at first, uh, the first four months, pretty much all you do is try and get your range of motion back, trying to straighten out your arm. Um, after after the, the four months went by is when you're actually able to, to start doing your tosses, be able to start throwing 60 feet. And uh, after, like, I would say seven, eight months is when you actually can, can get off the mound and start throwing at least flat grounds and uh, short mounds and stuff like that. And then uh, I, I ended up throwing in games at 11 and a half months, which was pretty quick. Because it usually takes a year, but thanks to God, I had no setbacks, and I was able to do that. You know, it, I've always heard that after that surgery, it normally takes about two years for that arm strength to build back up. Are you finding that that is the case? Yeah, actually, last year, um, my, uh, my arm strength was a little bit there. You know, it felt good. Some people get it back quicker than others, but this year is when it's really started to carry up, and it, uh, everything's been starting to work well. What is what is your fastball peaking out at right now? Uh, well, right now I, I've been peaking out at about 94. Now it's when it's you know getting the strength back again. It's been sitting like 92, 93, and I'll throw in there some 94. Jose, you you really had an outstanding high school baseball career, and I know in reading up on you, uh, you had a decision to make as to whether to go to college or or take the Yankees offer. You were the 24th round pick of the Yankees, but. What was the deciding factor in, in you deciding to hit the Yankees farmhand instead of going to college? 
Well, um, I had I had earlier calls, but didn't really take what they were offering. And uh, when the Yankees chose me, they they picked me, and then the scout that had that had always covered me called me and told me that they had picked me. And uh, it was just a, a, a factor of uh, me praying and feeling well with my family, and we felt that it was the best option because it was also an opportunity that was given to me. They gave me the chance also to go to college to pay for my studies. And I, uh, we just felt that it was a good opportunity because it's a great organization. And they um, pretty much just we felt that it was in God's plans and this is what God wanted. Jose, when you went through the, the Tommy John surgery, other than obviously medical, how much did the Yankee organization stick by you during that period? Uh, pretty much the whole way. I mean, they they had me in there. They had me in the facility in Tampa, rehabbing at first. And then when the season came to an end, that everybody was going home, they were able to send me to a, a pretty good person in Miami, in Aventura, where a lot of major leaguers and other athletes rehab as well. And I was able to keep doing my rehab over there by my house. And they're pretty much there the whole way. They would call me. Uh, Every week, every two weeks, they would call me to check up on me, ask me to send them videos, ask me to send them photos of how everything looked, and, and thanks to God, they were with me the whole way, and they've stuck behind me since. Our guest tonight on Ultimate Sports Talk is Jose Mesa, Jr., the son of Jose Mesa, former Indians reliever. Jose, when did you, when did you actually know that you had a chance to have a big league career? Well, thanks to God, uh, um, since I was a child, I was, I could see how I would I would uh, be able to play with older children, older older teens, you know, at, at a young age. So I was always pretty much, I guess, a little bit better than people that were more my age. So I, I knew that I had a chance to be able to at least play at a high level. And then once I got to high school, I was always confident in myself and I knew what I could do. And thanks to God, I just pretty much knew all along that I was going to be able to have this opportunity. So, Jose, what do the Yankees have? What do they project you to be, a reliever, a starter? What are they thinking? Um, well, right now I can't. I honestly can't answer that question as in uh, what they're going to do for next year. But I know that after surgery they wanted to bring me back as a reliever. But from what I heard, everybody's, like, pretty impressed and everything with how I can maintain strength throughout innings. And, like, I could pitch the first inning the same as I'll pitch the third inning and in my relief and They've been pretty impressed with that, so you never know if they might end up wanting to bring me in as a starter next season. But I always know that since they signed me, the scout always wanted me to be as a as a starter, as a reliever. I'm sorry, he always said that he saw me as my father. So, what do you figure that you have to work on in the minor leagues in order to make it up to the majors? Um, as a reliever, I figure that what I need to work on right now is just pretty much stay consistent. Because that's pretty much the same thing. That that's pretty much the only thing that takes you to beat me. Being consistent, being consistent, and keep working hard. If I keep doing that, then every time I go out there should be a good outing, and just pretty much stay working hard and not get uh, not 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 get too ahead of myself and want to do things you know uh, um like too much at once and stay in, in within myself and keep doing my job and everything should be fine. You know, earlier I brought up the fact that your last 10 games, it seemed like you had really pitched outstanding ball. What are you finding that you're having the most success doing now in those last 10 games? What are you finding is, is the reason for this? Well, in those last 10 games, I was just able to go out there and pitch with confidence. Pitch with confidence and have my faith in, in myself and in God and uh, be able to put the ball wherever I wanted. I felt that I would go out there and I would just pretty much say, like, okay, the catcher called the fastball, I'm going to throw a fastball here and he's not going to hit it. Whether I put it inside or outside, that's just pretty much how I felt. I just felt and I keep the same mentality that whatever I throw out there, I'm going to give him my 100% and it's going to be better than his 100% because he's not going to be able to hit it. That's just how I was thinking. Jose Mesa, Jr., our guest on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Jose, do you have a timetable in your mind as to when it is that you want to hit the major leagues? I mean, everybody Everybody that you would ask that question would obviously say as soon as possible. Right. Uh, or even anybody would say probably tomorrow, I want to be in the major leagues. But honestly, I just leave it all in God's hands and the Yankees organization, and hopefully it could be a move that's done soon. And hopefully I could keep 
showing my ability and my talent and that everything would just work out fine. I, I To me, I, I would wish that it would be as soon as possible because I feel that I would want to feel that I could be able to help the team in the, like the most that I can right now. Now, do you know if the Yankees will invite you to spring training next year or not yet? Uh, I don't know anything about that yet, but I'm really hoping that they do. It would be a great opportunity to me be able to showcase some of my talents at that level as well and see something that I haven't seen before, which would be big league hitters. Now, for, if I'm right, you've got about a month left to go on the minor league schedule? We have about, yeah, about three weeks, three weeks left. What what are you hoping to accomplish in those three weeks? I'm hoping to finish strong and and have a better have even better numbers here in Charleston than I did in Staten Island. Just keep improving and and be able to do well at this level right here would would show a lot for me to be able to start at a higher level next year. That's pretty Jose, much what I'm trying to keep on. Okay, you, you know, 19 years your dad spent in the majors. When you were growing up, you primarily saw him in Major League Baseball. You saw how everybody traveled and 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 worked out in Major League Baseball. Now you're in the minor leagues. Talk a little bit about the difference between the majors and the minors. I know there's a bunch, but is is it kind of a shell shock for you? Well, in the in the major leagues, you know, there's there's some people that wouldn't really put in a lot of work, and maybe that's why they wouldn't stay there as long. And I mean, in the minor leagues, there's a lot of people that are hungry, a lot of people that want to get up there. So you see a lot of people that are actually working hard. Uh, I mean, a lot of times you see people that don't really put in the work, and maybe that's why they don't stick stick around along a, a, a lot in here. But in the major league, pretty much everybody had done something to be there, and uh, everybody would go out there every day and just pretty much be able to, to do what they wanted because that's the whole reason why they were there. They're there in the big leagues for a reason. They were able to go out there and be able to to pretty much uh, uh, play the way that they wanted to play, you know, uh, pitch how they wanted to pitch and be able to do the things that made them feel comfortable. In the minor leagues, everything's a little bit different. You have to pretty much go by the organization until they let you go into your own style. How about the travel? How about, how about the travel well, in the that, minor leagues? The travel, the travel. This is my first year really seeing far road trips in bus, but it, it, it's pretty hectic. I mean, there would be games that you get out at uh, 11 o'clock, you leave at 12:30, and you get to the next place at 7 o'clock in the morning, and you have to you you have to sleep until two, and then you have to get ready to play that day, and you might even have to pitch that day, so you have to get ready as well. There's, you can't have no excuse about, oh, I feel stiff from the bus ride. You have to be ready to perform. In the big leagues, everything's on plane, so the farthest trip you have might be five hours if you go across, like, cross country, and you still get there at around, let's say, 2 in the morning, and then you could sleep until 12 or 1 and go to the field at 2 or 3. So everything's a lot more comfortable up there, that's for sure. You know, last question, Jose. You have really spoken a lot during this interview about God and your faith. If you can, your faith to me in, in just coming through here appears to be very, very important to you. Yeah, definitely. Definitely my, my faith in God is something that my parents always gave me since I was a child. Uh, there's never a day that I would go, that I, that I would see my dad walk out of the, the, the house without reading the Bible. And every morning he would pray and read the Bible before he left. Uh, my my mom would always take me to church as I was a little kid. And it's just something that pretty much is what I live for. It's, it's what what helps me go through every day. Every day I have faith in God. Every day I don't leave the house either without praying or reading the Bible. And it just makes me feel good every time I do it. It gives me an extra sense of confidence that I'm not out there by myself. I'm out there with God. And that's why I always believe that I'm going to get the job done. I always have the most confidence because I believe that I will get the job done because I have God with me. Jose Mason, Jr. has been our guest here this evening. He's with Charleston right now in single A of the Yankees Farm System, son of Jose Mesa. Jose, thanks for joining us tonight. I really appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Jose is 22 years old, and he is really 
finishing up his first complete year of professional baseball because he had that Tommy John surgery fresh out of high school. But his father pitched 19 years in the major leagues. And you know you've got to have a lot going on for you to be able to last 19 years in Major League Baseball. And here's hoping Jose Mesa Jr. is able to do that too. Our thanks to him for joining us here this evening on Ultimate Sports Talk. As far as what else is going on in Major League Baseball, there are some big matchups this weekend, but let's take a look at the wild card races now as we round out tonight's show in the National League. Pittsburgh is leading the way with the Cubs right there behind them, and they are three games in front of the San Francisco Giants in the wild card race. In the American League, Toronto is leading the way. The second wild card team right now is the Los Angeles Angels. They're a half a game in front of Baltimore and a game and a half in front of Texas. Now, some key matchups this weekend in Major League Baseball. Well, we've got the San Francisco Giants playing at Pittsburgh. That's a battle of two second-place teams in their division. The Los Angeles Dodgers are in Houston to play the Astros. That's a battle of two first-place teams in their divisions. And the Toronto Blue Jays will be in Los Angeles taking on the Angels, and that is a matchup of the two wildcard teams right now in the American League. So that's going to do it for Major League Baseball here tonight. And finally tonight... Well, the Cleveland Cavaliers have released their preseason schedule, which includes some games at Ohio State and Xavier University. Tickets are going to go on sale on September 10th at 10 a.m. for home games at Discount Drug Mart locations, the Quicken Loans Arena box office, and Cavs.com. Tickets to the games in Cincinnati and Columbus will be available at the Cintas Centers, the Schottenstein Center, Ticketmaster, and Cavs.com. Now here's a look at the schedule for the Cavaliers. They will play seven games, preseason games this year. It'll start out on October 7th. Believe it or not, that's just a month and a half away. October 7th. That will be against Atlanta at the Cintas Center at Xavier University. And then on Thursday, October 8th, it, they will be at Philadelphia. On Monday, October 12th, it will be the Memphis Grizzlies playing the Cavs at the Shot and Scene Center on the campus of Ohio State University. And then three of the last four games will be at Quicken Loans Arena. On Tuesday, October 13th, the Cavs will take on the Milwaukee Bucks in Cleveland. Again in Cleveland, two nights later on the 15th of October, that will be against Indiana. On Sunday, October 18th, the Cavs travel north of the border into Toronto to take on the Raptors. And then finally, the preseason will round out with a game at Quicken where the Cavs will take on the Dallas Mavericks. So that is a look at the Cavaliers' preseason schedule for this season. And hopefully it will be another trip to the NBA Finals for the Cleveland Cavaliers. What's going to happen with Tristan Thompson? Who in the world knows? But right now he is still unsigned. Don't forget, coming up a week from tomorrow night, August 28th, UltimateSportsTalk.com continues on with our high school football coverage for the second consecutive year as we bring you the Waynedale Golden Bears from Apple Creek, Ohio. Tusky Valley, down in the New Philadelphia area, will be in town to take on the Bears in that one will be on the air. Patrick Mitchell and I with the pregame show at 6.30. The kickoff will be at 7. And you can join us for Golden Bear Rewind, which is the final quarter of the previous week's game. In this case, we're going to go all the way back to October when the Bears wrapped up the season at Smithville, Ohio, as they take on the Smithies. All that happening a week from tomorrow night, August 28th, a Friday night, starting at 6 here on Ultimate sports talk and that's going to do it for us tonight don't forget mark donahue and i will be back on the air with another ohio baseball weekly show coming up monday night at nine o'clock where we'll talk about the cleveland indians and the cincinnati reds we'll replay our interview with jose mesa at that point in time during the broadcast and we'll be back on the air with our show again next thursday night at seven o'clock here for ultimate sports talk our thanks to Mario Granada of HashtagSports.com for being our guest tonight, along with Jose Mesa Jr., the son of Jose Mesa. Our thanks to both of them for being our guest here this evening. Our thanks also to Greg Mitchell for producing the show and to you for listening. I'm going to kick back and watch the Browns take on the Buffalo Bills on ESPN here in just a few minutes. We'll be back on the air next Thursday night at 7 with another Ultimate Sports Talk show. I'm Dave Mitchell. Enjoy the game, enjoy your weekend, and enjoy your week, everybody. 
Have a good one. Talk to you again next Thursday night at 7. Until then, good night.